0: Welcome to the Pickup Game. We're going to be talking about Boston sports today, mostly David Price and his bizarre, disappointing week. Chris Smith of MassLive.com joins me and we dissect the scene on Wednesday night, the scene on Thursday night, and the unique sports atmosphere of Boston. Check out Chris's thoughts on the Red Sox at MassLive.com and on the Boston Red Sox subreddit. He's one of the most accessible beat writers in the country and a Boston guy through and through. Welcome to The Pickup Game. I'm your host, Tim Williams, joined this week by Chris Smith of MassLive.com, Red Sox beat reporter. We're going to talk about the Red Sox, the AL East, and for the most part, David Price, because it's been a week that's really centered around David Price. On Wednesday night, David Price pulled a reporter aside. Well, Chris, you were there. Describe the scene for us a little bit. Yeah, so, uh, you know, we
1: were huddled outside the clubhouse as usual uh, before the media was able to go in. So there's a big contingent of media. And once we were called in, uh, there's a hallway that goes, you know, from the door where we come in to the manager's office at Yankee Stadium. In that hallway was David Price. A few media members, I think it was cameramen, said hi to David. He said hi back. And then when Evan Drellick of uh, Comcast Sportsnet New England passed by, Uh, He was about a couple people in front of me. Um, David Price said, can you talk for, for, can you come here and talk? I want to talk to you privately. And Evan said, sure. And they went um, into the tunnel area, which goes from, so there's a hallway. And then right beyond the hallway is the tunnel area that goes from the clubhouse to the dugout. They went into the tunnel area. The rest of the reporters went into John Farrell's office, and that's when the action began. (laughs) Um, we heard a, a lot of screaming. The now John Farrell's office door usually isn't closed, um, unless you know the players are playing music or something, uh, in the clubhouse, or there's something going on where you know somebody's. You know talking back and forth, you know an equipment manager or something with somebody else, they sometimes close the door, but it's usually on the road it's not closed uh all of a sudden, things got really heated. You could hear in the background that the two were both yelling back and forth at each other um you could hear some obviously uh some f bombs going back and forth and um uh, and then uh one of the media relations uh members closed the door and um, we just kind of heard in the back in the, you know, in the background of, you know, what, what Farrell was saying. Now it's funny, like when I was listening to my recorder, of what Farrell was saying after the game, you know, talking about Drew Pomeranz two seam or whatever, you could hear the muffling of their, their fight in the background, but you couldn't actually hear what they were fighting about but I was, I was saying to some reporters nearby, I was like, I can't hear Farrell. All I can hear is, you know, these guys fighting in the background. But I can't, I can't make out what they're actually saying. But um, we kind of knew immediately that Evan had, um, you know, had, And if I'm
0: talking too long and you, <laughs> you want to stop me, uh, let me know. Oh, I'll interject every now and then. I I, I just want people to get the sense of what was going on, because there's been a few articles about it, but unless you live in the Boston area, you might have just heard this as background noise, and suddenly then David Price has a terrible start Thursday night and it's a big story. So I, I wanted people to get an idea of the scene. Now you were in the manager's press conference for a fair amount of this. You weren't able to see what the other players were doing in the, in the meanwhile, while this was going on, because that's something I've been wondering is how this might've been received inside the clubhouse.
1: Yeah. So from what Evan says, um, now, there was some speculation that they were, they, well, Evan says they were very close to each other yelling. And he did not feel at all, though, that Price was going to, you know, haul off and punch him. Uh, that had been, I don't know how that got out. I don't know who put that out there. But Evan says that wasn't the case. Um, he didn't feel there was going to be any physical. Uh, harm done or anything like that. but well, that sounds about right. Play- if they were
0: shouting at each other.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess, but, you know, a player did, you know, go in between, I guess, a little bit. I don't know which player that was. Um, there weren't many players in the actual clubhouse when we filed out from John Carroll's office and went into the clubhouse. Now, we started talking to Rick Porcillo, um and David Price came into the, you uh, know, the clubhouse, Evan, I don't know where he went at that point, he probably either went to do TV, or he was just talking to the media relations person, you know, Kevin Gregg, about what had just transpired, um, but David was, you know, he came in, and he sat by his locker, and he did not look happy, and we were talking to rick and then we we walked across the room to to talk to mookie betts and i looked over at price and he was just glaring at the media like he was he was upset he was he was ready to you know he was ready to go and fight some more and um and so steve buckley uh from the heralds uh was there and, you know steve's a well-respected columnist reporter been doing this for many years he's not the type that's gonna pile on a, on a player um but if he does write something critical it's it's usually fair obviously and um so he went over to price and i don't see why price would have any problem with him and immediately the f-bombs uh started going at, at, at steve um And then Ian Brown from MLB.com went over and just said, you know, what's the deal? What's going on? And, uh, you know, he told him to, to, you know, F off. And so, um, you know, and Ian is, you know, when you work for MLB.com, it's not like you're trying to write anything controversial. I don't think Ian's written a controversial thing about David Price beyond like, you know, he pitched poorly and this is why he pitched poorly Here's your quote from David Price, so you know all in all, he took it out on some guys that you know even even Evan I mean Evan didn't do anything wrong; they were harmless tweets, and it just goes to show that he was either looking at Twitter within five minutes after the game uh to meet Evan out in the hallway and and as I said, harmless tweets i mean Evan um you know basically tweeted us a, a quote from. Dan Shaughnessy's story about how uh, David said that he wasn't going to do any personal interviews anymore in between starts, um, and that you know he was only going to talk on game days after he starts with a, with a group of reporters, um, and he also tweeted out what the CBA says about uh, you know what what they recommend that. The CBA doesn't say that it's required that reporters speak uh, that that players speak to reporters, but that you know it's highly, it's recommended, and um, you know so that's really all that 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 uh, Evan did. He wasn't like he was trolling Price on Twitter. He didn't tag his name. Uh, he didn't tag his Twitter handle. He he wasn't he was going back with some fans, you know, debating the issue. I guess of you know how much players should talk with the media. Possibly, but uh, I don't. I didn't see anything wrong with what Evan did. And it's not that I'm saying this because Evan's a friend. I, I think that Price just took this way too seriously. And I think that that's the issue with Price is that he says something and he gets upset that what he said becomes a big sword. So I think he was upset. You know, so, so you know, in the past, he feels burned because certain um, quotes that he gives reporters are pulled out and they're analyzed by the media, uh, you know, and why not? I mean, that's what he gave. And so uh, a quote like this, where he says he's not going to talk to the media, that's going to be analyzed. And, um, and he didn't like it.
0: Well, and there's a saying among the reporters around Boston, and it's very famous, that they pride themselves on not being the team's cheerleaders, not being the team's spokespeople, and not being the fan's spokespeople. That they they are not afraid to say something negative about a player. It's not that there's any kind of attack or anything being fabricated, but if they see something they don't like, it's customary to call the player out on it so this is kind of a culture and it's well known around places that boston is different that it's it has its own it's its own world in a lot of ways and i it leads to a narrative that i've always wondered about and you hear it a lot around here that Only certain guys are made up to play in Boston and deal with the pressures of the Boston media. Do you feel that's true? I do, and it's funny because uh, in terms of the daily
1: media that covers the team, there were not many negative articles written about David Price last year. I can remember something that Evan wrote and he was working at The Herald at the time it said, "You know price should let his you know, pitching do the talking, you know something like that. I wrote a negative article about a uh after his uh you know after he got um hit pretty hard in l a um and then you know I wrote some some uh things analyzing his tweets this off season you know after he tweeted back to a fan a fan you know tweeted to him during Halloween uh, around Halloween time and said i should dress up as a playoff star cuz that would scare the heck out of you and most athletes would just you know if that if Rick, if somebody said that to Rick Purcello somebody said that to Chris Sale if Chris Sale was on twitter which he isn't obviously he would you know ignore it and price doesn't and so, you know, and then there was that other situation this offseason where Price just brought it up himself, where he was on his honeymoon in Hawaii, and he said, you can't lose a playoff start in Hawaii, like, you know, like he's getting out ahead of it. So that instead of just posting the picture of Hawaii and how beautiful it is, you know, and, and knowing that people are going to attack him, fans are going to attack him, and say, oh, your 0-8 as a playoff start or whatever. Um, he's trying to get out ahead of it, maybe say, and that's, somebody had told me that that knows price, you know, maybe he's trying to get out ahead of it. Um, and so they don't say it, but it just makes him look like he's sensitive. And, you know, it's like, there's just no need, you know, he's making 200 and whatever.
0: He wants people to like him. He wants people to think he's funny. And I I kind of found the humor in that tweet. I saw it and kind of chuckled a little bit. But I also think at times David Price doesn't realize there's a downside to wanting the spotlight. And that's exactly what's happening now. That if you want that, if you're going to call attention to yourself by, well, in this case, really picking a fight, then it's going to come up that you get utterly shelled the next night. And that's what ended up happening is in one of the most predictable starts all year, David Price pitched extremely poorly after picking a fight with a reporter the night before, giving every columnist in the Boston area a chance to write exactly the piece that he fears the most. And what was his demeanor after the game?
1: Well, he was very, and and the word's been used, that he was professional.
0: And, um,
1: which he was. I mean, you know, I would think that in a situation like that, he's going to, um, you know, it's going to be an awkward situation. And, um, you know, but it it wasn't awkward. He came over. He was very uh, respectful with reporters. He had a smile on his face. Uh, you know, it was just like, you know, he, he, he like he wanted to be there, like he wanted to talk to reporters. And uh, so, you know, I mean, it was a uh, <laughs> it was weird because you were expecting something like you, you were expecting him not to talk with the reporters last night. How, how could somebody go from, you know, telling three reporters to F off to all of a sudden being, you know, willing to answer everybody's question that you just told to off. you know, that's, that's the situation right there. That's the awkwardness, obviously, but he was very professional. I mean, he came over, he answered everybody's question. He even took a question from Evan. Uh, you know, Evan asked him about, uh, the strike zone. And if he thought the strike zone was, uh, was, uh, bad or if he was complaining about the strike zone. So, um,
0: you know, I asked him the question. So, uh, you know, it was all business for him. Well, that, that's a solid sign, but it, it doesn't speak well to the problem that a lot of fans, and it comes up in the media occasionally, have with Price, is that his record in big games, most notably playoff games, but also regular season games with a lot of meaning, isn't particularly great. And it would have helped a lot if he had shown up on the Yankee Stadium mound and shut up a lot of these reporters for a second if that's what he thought he was doing but that he pitches with the chip on his shoulder so poorly is cause for concern for a lot of people and last night didn't help yeah you know and, and he's he's struggled with the Yankees throughout his career there's been a couple good
1: years in there Um you know, but he, I mean, he had an eight point now since he's come to Boston and I think I wrote in an article yesterday, I think it was, it's an 8.23 area or something. It's six starts since he's been with Boston against the Yankees. They have absolutely owned him. And so he, he was putting himself out there, as you said, and then he put himself out there for his manager to have to answer, you know, at least 10 questions before the game about the situation that happened the night before, and then he just doesn't come out and perform. And yes, you know, you can talk about why he hasn't performed in the playoffs. And that might be because he thinks too much, all his situation. There's been speculation that perhaps it's because he throws 200 innings plus per year. And we've seen that with certain pitches. You know, he threw 230 innings last year, and, you know, you get tired. And so there's some speculation that, you know, at that point of the season, he's worn down.
0: And in last night's case, it's all but a spring training start. He's just come off the disabled list, let's face it. But he also pitched incredibly well in his last start against a good Baltimore lineup. So it's a bit surprising that he came out so flat in Yankee Stadium. And it did seem to me like he was throwing too hard. He was pressing a little bit. It's it, He wanted to be too perfect. He wanted everything to work for him. And it didn't help that a couple of borderline calls didn't go his way. And then he kept hitting the same corner, hoping it would get a different result.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's the situation with him. It's just that, you know, he needed to perform on that stage. That was an important game. I mean, you know, I, I wrote a positive column after his Baltimore start. You know, he he has better velocity than he did last year at this point. And, you know, I mean, early in the season last year, I know there's cold weather thing, but throughout the entire season last year, his velocity was down. He averaged, I think it was 92.9 on his fastball last year. And his velocity has been good this year. It's been 94, 95, 96. And, you know, I was always a Zach Grinke fan for the Red Sox. I wanted them to sign Zach Grinke, not David Price, because I felt like David Price's secondary stuff is kind of average. It, unless if he doesn't have his fastball, then his secondary stuff doesn't play as well. And it seems if he like loses in
0: the hindsight, play, so far, Johnny Cueto was the real prize of that creation. Class. <laughs> yes. It was, it was, and he, he you wanted know, and, to be in Boston. He said yeah. a lot of glowing things about Pedro Martinez and wanting to follow in that legacy. And he ended up in San Francisco, and he's the best part of a really rough Giants team right now. Yeah, um,
1: you know, and, and it's funny because a lot of people had said things about like Grinky about back in the day, like, oh, the anxiety thing, he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't be a good fit for Boston. I felt like he was a better fit for Boston, though, because he seems like the type of guy to me that really doesn't care as much as, as Price, like about what people think about him. I mean, he was asked about, you know, signing a contract with the Dodgers at one point, he said, I did it because I got the most money from them. You know, he just tells the truth like it is. And I think price, as you said, he wants everybody to like him. And that's, that's a problem. That's an issue because not everybody's going to like you in Boston. And everybody did like him in Tampa Bay. And, you know, from all accounts, everybody did like him in, in, in Toronto and Detroit. And he pitched well there. The thing too is, is that, and I, I was saying this to somebody, somebody else the other day, first impressions are lasting. His first 12 starts last year were terrible. Or it's, I think it was his first 12, maybe first eight, something like that. You know, and that immediately set the tone that, you know, he got off on the wrong side with fans. Uh, you know, Chris Sale comes out like a maniac this year. And he's like, he's like, you know, you know, Boston's favorite son, because, you know, I mean, first impressions are lasting.
0: And so um, you only need to ask Rick Porcello about that. He won the Cy Young last year, but a lot of Red Sox fans still see him as a disappointment because he started off on the wrong foot and he had a couple of bad starts this year. So their impression of him has nothing to do with the fact that he was an excellent pitcher last year and won the Cy Young award. Yeah.
1: So, you know, I've even seen that, you know, I mean, he he got a lot of attention last year. So a lot of fans did take to him last year, the pretty rookie thing and yada, yada, yada. But I've seen a lot of comments on Twitter about like, you know, disappointment in Rick for like, you know, Uh, You know, you know, nicknames that are not friendly towards him. So, yeah, first impressions are lasting. Price did not get a good first impression. And he did not get a good first impression as a playoff starter for the the Red Sox. That was one of his I mean, I haven't gone through his whole entire game log right now and looked at it. But that's got to be one of his worst
0: playoff starts that he's had. Yeah, he was he was bounced pretty quickly from that start, and and he didn't get another chance. That he only got the one because the team got swept. So that was it. You don't get a second shot, and that's the cruelty of the playoffs. We're talking about an incredibly small sample size here. In the end, if you get the guy enough playoff starts, there are certainly plenty of examples throughout sports of guys who were choke artists until suddenly they weren't and you can go to almost any sport and find one of those that they were always asking when this when's the guy gonna win and then suddenly they end up with a bunch of them but you have to get it and he didn't help his cause with that it's you you know you only get that opportunity and that goes back to what we were talking about earlier the expectations of playing for the Red Sox at this point are incredibly high. And I'm not sure David Price ever really wrapped his mind around that when he signed that contract at the Red Sox.
1: And I think that that's, that's an issue with a lot of ball players in general is, is that too much money is focused. Uh, too much attention is focused on the money instead of the happiness. I mean, so, you know, and I know that the, There's pressure from the union, obviously, to take the most money as
0: well. Um, That helps the union out. (laughs) And there's an agent who gets a percentage of this deal. He's not going to advise David Price. Hey, could you take the lower deal?
1: Yeah. So, but, you know, in retrospect, uh, you know, he would have made what? I don't know, 40,000 less, 30,000 less in, in, I mean, 30 million less, 40 million less in, in uh, St. Louis, but he probably would have been a lot happier person right now, and he would have pitched better, and he still would have been really rich. <laughs> so, you know, money doesn't, uh, money's not all the things, and, and players need to think about that. I mean, it was we saw it with Kyle Crawford. I mean, his his time here was just, I mean, miserable.
0: And no, in, this in, just in, isn't it's going on. The... Didn't exactly revitalize his career when he left Boston. He might've just been used goods when he got here. Yeah, no, you're right about that. Um, and he was complaining
1: though about, I mean, he wouldn't even, I, I think both him and Adrian Gonzalez, they wouldn't even talk to reporters when Red Sox reporters, when they went and I wasn't with the traveling media at that point. I think in 2013 when the Red Sox played a series in in, a daughter stadium, they wouldn't even talk. (laughs) They hated it so much here. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, it's just a place that, I don't know, just some people can't handle. And as I said, I don't think it's about the the daily beat writers as much, but, you know, Price has put it on the daily beat writers now. But it's, it's a whole thing where... You know, you get these quotes, things are analyzed. There's two talk radio stations in Boston. There's now the addition of uh, CSNN, you know, uh, Comcast Sports Net New England that's doing regional
0: cable networks.
1: They're doing talk, CSNN is doing talk the whole entire night, four hours worth of, of, you know, debate. Uh, on, on on Boston sports topics, and these players here, they, they don't ignore that. Uh, David Price is very familiar with what's been said about him on, on Comcast.
0: Yeah, it, it's a bit insane. You're listening to The Pickup Game. I'm Tim Williams. I'm joined this week by Chris Smith of MassLive.com. Boston really is unique, and you touched on it with the two radio stations, the The CSN's doing sports talk all night now. There's a local network that used to be NBC that's now just an independent channel that has an awful lot of sports programming on, and they all have to fill the air somehow. It's a very crowded town. I think per capita we have more sports reporters than anywhere. I would guess so. Everyone's looking for an edge, and a lot of guys do go negative. That's not really the beat reporters because they have to go with the team and with each other. There's kind of you. You can't keep going around with the same people all the time and have rivalries between each other. So I, I'd imagine it's more the guys sitting on their couch or the guys sitting in a radio booth that have to fill three hours a day of airtime. And that's never going to be filled with, Hey, everything's good. And aren't that aren't these players great.
1: Yeah. It's funny because I never was on the beat with, you know, say Tony Maserati when he covered the Red Sox, but you hear that a lot of beat writers, um, you know, have said, well, he's changed, <laughs> you know? And, you know, from when he was on the Red Sox beat to now when he's on, you know, uh, 98.5 The Sports Hub, you know, for four hours a day between two and six. You know, he has a lot of opinions and a lot of uh, negative opinions in a way. Uh, so he treats things differently. And you know what? He has a job, they get ratings, and that's what they do. and. um you know, so it it is a different, uh, you know, it, it's a different world in Boston. Um, you know, it, it's it's difficult. I mean, you know, I, I would think it would be, you know, it's it's funny though. Like you see, players like Jackie Bradley Jr. and there was a lot of negative stuff written about Jackie Jackie Bradley Jr. There was, you know, constant scrutiny about, you know, his slumps, his you know, his streakiness whether he could be an everyday player what why he was hitting 100 you know when he came i mean there was constant negative articles i even wrote in 2015 you know this this the last chance for jackie bradley um there was always those type of articles with jackie bradley but he was used to it this is what he grew up with he doesn't know anything different uh david price Knows other things. He he was in three other markets where those things weren't written as much, and so he knows di- he knows a different market, and where Jackie Bradley just dealt with this from day one. And he you know, and, and so it's easier. He yeah,
0: and so even price so I have- for a few managers that are not John Farrell that have different, different clubhouses and different atmospheres, most notably Joe Madden, who was more than happy to engage price on all of his friendliness and all of his, his trying to be out in front because nobody's more out in front of a baseball team than Joe Madden. You can't take the spotlight from Joe Madden. You can try, but you yeah. can't really do it, so he was a good foil for David Price, and then he had a brief time with Jim Leland, who is so old school I can't imagine he would take that stuff for a second. You'd have to explain Twitter to him for about three <laughs> hours i I can't imagine his response was anything but a tirade of f bombs that that might be where David Price learned to yell those things at a reporter
1: yeah so yeah I mean, it's different with with John Farrell. I'm not exactly sure whether he gets
0: along with John Farrell that well. um you know this might bring them closer together if there's one person that can understand David Price's issues with the media. it's a guy who sports radio spends about eighteen hours a day trying to fire, yeah, exactly right uh yeah, I mean but. I wouldn't be happy,
1: you know, if I was John Farrell with David Price. I mean, you know, even if that's a friendly thing, which, you know, that manager John thing that he's done now twice, once on Twitter, and he did it after one of his rehab uh, or one of his sim games in Pawtucket. Um, you know, that, that that's brought up questions on whether it's been disrespectful to John Farrell. Uh, I don't know. I mean, he everybody says he's a great teammate. And I'm not denying that, but there, there, you know, I'm not sure if he gets along with the manager too well. And we, we know from Ken Rosenthal's article that there's certain guys that don't get along with the manager. So, you know, I mean, we'll see, but uh, you know, it's every day. I mean, it's going to be a story the rest of the year with Price, how he pitches, what, what goes on,
0: how, how things
1: transpire.
0: And, it will be really interesting to see how both Farrell and the rest of the clubhouse either rally around this or get tired of it in a hurry because To what we've we've both been saying, there's plenty of reason for players in this clubhouse to kind of agree with Price on some of this, that they've all been through this too, and I'm sure there are times where they wish they could pull a reporter aside and do the same thing, but they (laughs) either know better or didn't want to do it. In one of the articles about what happened, it was implied that Rick Porcello at one point kind of chimed in. So there is that part of it that maybe this becomes a rallying point. Certainly a local sports team has used a lot less as a rallying point to go on a long win streak. The new England Patriots will find disrespect where there is none and use it to rattle off 10 games in a row. So maybe it's kind of a motivational tactic from there, but at the same time, this is more questions for John Farrell. This is more stuff that the team has to deal with and, They've been through this before, and it didn't go well when guys were stirring up stuff in the clubhouse before. I'm sure Dustin Pedroia has some experience with this. He saw what happened to Terry Francona, and he also had to deal with Bobby Valentine, who used reporters in a weird way and tried to start fights and tried to do... Well, he's kind of a textbook on how not to do Boston properly. So there are guys out there who might get tired of this in a hurry. And that suddenly leaves David price on an Island, or maybe they talk sense into him, or maybe it becomes a weird rallying point for the rest of the team. It, that remains to be seen, but certainly last night didn't help the cause. And that that's really where it became a big issue. If he'd come out and had six quality innings and left and they lost two to one, I'm not sure it would be that big a deal. It'd be price confirming a lot of what, what the narrative say about him might be true. And then we'd just move on. But as bad as that start went, it's going to be a story and it's not going to go away. And I don't expect him to back down from it, which could turn out really poorly as well. Well, he didn't back down from it after the start
1: because you know, as I was talking about, you know, the professionalism after the start, but he was asked some questions about what transpired. And he at first said, you know, no comment. And then he said, I stand by it. And, um, you know, so, and then it was asked if he knew that John Farrell was planning to talk with them. And he said, then we'll talk in Boston or something. And, he didn't really acknowledge that he knew. And then, um, you know, there was, there was just a weird exchange there. And then, uh, you know, he, he said, well, it's not my, you know, it's my start day. John was going to leave me alone. I'll talk to whoever wants to talk to me in Boston. You know, obviously, what, what are they going to say to him? Uh, you know, I mean, he's a, he's a 30 something year old guy. He's been around for years. Uh, it's not like they're going to discipline him and, you know, about, I don't know, maybe they can, but, you know, I mean, he's making $217 million. He's, he's been an ace, he's won a young Young. Um, you know, there's only so much they can say to him at this point.
0: Well, that makes me wonder, if Boston is so unique, should the Red Sox either start training their players to deal with it or start vetting their players based on that a little more so they think twice about signing a free agent or trading for a guy that might not be able to deal with this city? Or is that taking things a little too far? Because you'd wonder about if David Price really can't succeed in Boston that well because just he doesn't mix with Boston well enough. If that's the case, should the Red Sox have been looking for that, or should they start looking for that in the future, or maybe their contacts through John Henry owning the Boston Globe and the team owning a television network might be able to give them a chance to train these guys to not do this kind of stuff and to deal with the pressures of Boston. Because if that's the case, I think that's where this has to go.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, there was that thing that was brought up and this was obviously a different regime at the time, um, with Ben Sharon, uh, was it who signed, uh, Carl Crawford? It was, it was Theo Epstein. And, um, you know, there was that private investigator thing or something like that following Crawford before they signed it to see, you know, if he could handle or uh, what his personality was like. And, you know, Crawford didn't find out about that until after he signed it. He was kind of freaked out about that. And, um, So they obviously did some due diligence on Crawford. Uh, And and you look at Dombrowski, Dombrowski was with them in Detroit for, you know, a year or half a year or a year, year and a half or whatever it was. Um, So, you know, he, or I guess it was a full year from trade, from trade deadline to trade deadline. Um, So, you know, he knew price. He knew about prices, mental toughness. Um, but he also needed a pitcher. And that's the thing. I mean, you know, he was left with really no starting rotation from Ben Sherrington and he had to build a rotation. I mean, he had no one really. And so, um, I mean, I guess you could say he had Rick Priscilla and Wade Miley at that point, but they, they weren't coming off great seasons. And so, uh, You know, he was left with a lot of young guys and not much starting pitching depth, and they still don't have much starting pitching depth from that Sherrington era. And uh, he had to make a move, and he knew that guy, and that's what he did. In terms of, you know, media training, I mean, they do do, uh, in in dealing with the media, and also I think that there should be, and I'm not sure if if they train them on, you know, social media things. I think they might. But David Price, needs, they need to focus with David Price on that because he's obviously too sensitive. He obviously goes back and forth with fans more than he should um, and shows his sensitivity. Now, he hasn't done it in a while. He hasn't done it, I don't think, since the, the offseason. So maybe he's learned. When I did talk to him in Toronto, he said that he was done with, you know, like he, he said, I don't care about the people on Twitter. So maybe he's totally done dealing with them and he, he, you know, he's forgotten all about, you know, he doesn't, he's he's sick and tired of that. And he's done with that. The me against the, the world type thing, we as reporters, we knew that he was done with us. We didn't need Dan Shaughnessy's article to tell us that Uh, he wasn't talking to local. He had told Evan in Chicago that he wasn't talking to he was done with the media for a while. And, um, you know, other guys have come in and talked with him. You know, Ken Rosenthal did a long interview with him in Baltimore, I know, at least talked to him for a long time, blanking on who else. There was a couple national guys that, that talked to him, uh, you know, in, in uh, Baltimore. And so he's fine with talking to the guys that, he's known in the national guys, he's just done. And we knew that. So he could have just, you know, me against the local media type thing. And I'm going to show them and use that as motivation, me against the world type thing. But then he brought up this whole thing on his own. He didn't have to tell Sean to see that and make him the, and make himself the story, especially after a big start.
0: Right. And it shifting gears just for a moment. Yeah what would you say the profile of a guy that really would succeed in Boston is? If a certain kind of player can succeed, what would you say the profile is for that player? Because the tricky part with me is I look throughout the history about the Red Sox and the other Boston teams, and a lot of the greatest guys that have come through any of these teams don't fit it.
1: It's interesting because I was... um... I was thinking about this and I was thinking about I saw D- David Ross. He was uh, you know at the game calling the game the other day last night. I think he was calling the game for ESPN. Um and I know he was there and I said to I said to myself I wonder how he would have perspective on dealing with Boston but then I th- because he he loved it, he embraced it. But he wasn't the star, obviously, and anybody that comes in is the star. It's different. So, like a guy that embraced it, like Kevin Millar, he wasn't the star. He wasn't expected to be great. Uh, another one, like Johnny Gomes, he had a great personality. He could he could capture a clubhouse and, and lead, but no one expected Johnny Gomes coming in. I, I forget what his contract was. Maybe two years, six million or whatever. No one was expecting him to be. You know, great. Uh, so it's easier for guys to come in like a Chris Young. But there's not expectations. Those guys do fine. I remember Nick, P- Nick Punto, you know, came over in that trade with, uh, uh, or Nick Punto was sent to the Dodgers. And I remember hearing that he told Adrian Gonzalez and, to, and Kyle Crawford, you know, what are you guys talking about? Boston's a great place to play after they were traded to the Dodgers and, and he heard them talking badly about Boston and that, and that Dodgers locker room. But Nick Puto isn't a good player. I mean, he's not like he's, he's not like Adrian Gonzalez and, and Kyle Crawford where we're centered around them. Now, if you're going to get a star player, it's gotta be like a Mookie Betts type. And we always, and, and as I said, Jackie Bradley and certain guys, they're just accustomed to this because they grew up. I mean, they've, they've known this from the beginning and, So, you know, I don't know how, but I know that a Mookie Best type would be able to deal with this if he came in here because he's the type that, you know, just goes about his, his work doesn't, he's, he gives like Pedroia, like quote, nothing very interesting at all. Um, and, And, you know, Pedroia, you know, I mean, those are the types right there, you know, that, it's not about them. It's about the team. And, and, um, you know, the, he's, you know, I look at Mookie Betts, like he, he's a type of leader type and he's a little bit like, you know, like make the comparison a little bit to Derek Jeter, like, and that, you know, he's just very respectful. And, you know, the quotes are, he never wants to talk about himself. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. He never wants to talk about himself. and, he always wants to talk about what the team is doing well or something like that. And I guess that's that's basically what a player needs to be like if he, he comes in here and he's the star. As I said, it's easy if you're David Ross. It's easy if you're Johnny Gomes. It's easy if you're Chris Young. Chris Young's better than some of those guys. Um, a star player well, it's very difficult.
0: I would add on to that, that for a star player, you can wear things on your sleeve, but you have to be prepared for the downside of that. Because I can think of a few guys that that really did care, but Pedro Martinez got past that. He had a lot of the same issues Price is having, except his results were considerably better. Of course, he's in my all-time rotation, so there's that, but... Even when he was the best pitcher in the world, he was getting questions about this, and he managed to get past it and really embrace Boston. And now he's with the organization. I'm not the first person to suggest he could be the guy from within that really helps David Price. Because he can kind of harness that, yes, you want people to like you, but you're going to have to be prepared for when it doesn't go well, they're not going to like you. And that's how it goes. And it's a two-way street. David Ortiz was more than happy to be the face of the franchise, but he also produced tremendously, especially in clutch situations. He was kind of the anti-David Price in that regard. In a way, he's the best postseason player in something like 60 years. So that helped his cause considerably. But he didn't, he would have no problem having a bad day. He would, he understood that there were bad things that came around with that attention, that it could get negative sometimes. And if you want to be out in front, you have to deal with that negativity. And you can get past not being a Boston guy. Pedro did. Paul Pierce did. He, for the first five years of his career, wasn't a Boston guy. And now he's a Celtics legend. Manny Ramirez was never a Boston guy. Had a great career in Boston, but came in as an outsider and left as an outsider. And he wouldn't be the first. It's just all of them at some point had to address that, Things can go wrong, and when things go wrong, you're going to have to deal with that, because being out in front means dealing with that. And that's what David Price has to get past. And if he doesn't get past it, the real issue is, with the amount of money he's making and the way he's producing he's going to have to get used to Boston because there's no way out of this besides opting out of his contract in a couple of years. And he had better be an ace again if he wants to do that because otherwise he's taking a tremendous pay cut in doing so.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the union wouldn't look good upon that. And, um, you know, it's interesting. Another player, like, you know, you look at Josh Beckett where he didn't, he didn't care what fans thought about him. Uh, and that, that's what made him good in the postseason, I think. And, you know, he obviously, he never really embraced Boston, but he, he was the type of guy that could come in and succeed here. Uh, you know,
0: but Schilling... at the same time he was run out on a rail for not caring because between the chicken yeah. and beer incident and playing yep. golf on an off day, something <laughs> Matt Harvey should have learned from. Yeah. And you know, it, it all unraveled for him really fast. But then you look back on it and he still, he was the best pitcher on a world champion. And there yep. are a handful of guys who have ever played baseball who can say that about the Boston Red Sox.
1: And, and you look at Schilling and he's an interesting case because he would call into radio stations and argue with certain guys. He, he, he hated Shaughnessy. He got in fights with Shaughnessy. So he, he read what he read, probably everything. And as I said, you know, I'm 33. So yeah, I was in college when he was, you know, winning the world series with the Red Sox. I was not covering the team, but um, you know, he, I'm he it seems like he was a guy that read everything. He was listening to the radio station all the time. But he embraced Boston
0: for sure. Um, you know, I mean well, watch Red Sox games on his little that, what's that? that was the time that most people paid more attention to the Red Sox than ever. I was in college at the same time and I was listening to those radio shows, knowing Kurt Schilling was probably gonna call in and start a fight.
1: <laughs> yeah. And uh you know, and it's like, and he embraced uh, Boston so much that now he, you know, now he's watching, he watches Red Sox games. And another one that, you know, it's funny that, you know, like Keith Folk still watches Red Sox games. like, that's his team now. Keith Folk uh, watches the Red Sox every, every night. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's not like it's an impossible place. You've got uh, Steve Buckley always says you have to embrace the bu- base the Boston baseball experience. That's his big, that's his big saying. Um, some people enjoy it. Uh, some people don't. And you really do have to embrace it. You, you know, I grew up you know, in this, you know, right outside of Boston and I enjoy every bit of it. I know that, you know, this is what people do. They They talk about this team. They, They break everything down. You know, every manager's move is scrutinized. I grew up, you know, at a time before they won a World Series, so it was more intense then where everything was scrutinized. Everything was negative to a degree where they were never going to win the
0: World Series and
1: yada, yada, yada.
0: Um, I like to describe it. I like that. It was like watching Roadrunner cartoons and rooting for the Coyote back then. (laughs)
1: Yeah. And so I, I, that's what I, you know, that's how I grew up and that's how I cover the team because that's how I, that's how I saw it. And, um, you know, I'm not gonna, as a person that covers the team, I'm not going to write, you know, I'm not going to not post a stat or say something goofing around with fans about David Price on Twitter um, uh, you know, just make a joke or say something funny, uh, or, or write his his stats, you know, his his poor stats at, at Yankee Stadium because I think there's gonna be, you know, backlash that he's gonna, you know, you know, get fired up and yell at me in the club. I'm not gonna worry about that. I'm gonna do my
0: job. Right. And that goes back to that famous line about not being the team's so people. That that's yeah. That's something that Every sports writer really has that mantra, but it, it they wear it on their sleeves in Boston. And of course, famously, Boston has a couple of guys that are known for being kind of the, the guy that will find the cloud inside the silver lining. They're, they're really good at that at times, but that's the job. They're not, they're not reporting what's convenient to the team especially because this is a team that, for better and for worse, has the perception that they do play games in the media. Whether they do or not, it's talked about a lot in the Boston area that the Red Sox are some manipulative, almost Machiavellian organization.
1: Well expand on that point a little bit more for me.
0: Well, you hear a lot, and this is fans, and this is radio. I'm not talking about beat writers because again, yeah, yeah. they have to deal with everyone on a daily basis. They're not stirring the pot for a living. But there, there's a widespread belief that ownership is somehow leaking all these. Whatever a player or a manager leaves town, there's inevitably mm-hmm. going to be a spear, smear campaign that's led mm-hmm. by the guys who run the organization and these shadowy leaks that we're never really sure where they're coming from and it you hear it a lot and it becomes a good talking point because again you have a combined 48 hours a day of sports talk radio going on you have to fill that time so there's a lot of weirdness in here too and that's yeah. just something that has to be dealt with, and people that have to sort narratives through a lot of noise.
1: Yeah, and that doesn't—that doesn't, uh, that doesn't I, you know, the leaking stuff doesn't do them any favors
0: because, it, you know,
1: how can that help them?
0: Uh, no, it, in terms there's of, never been a good motive offered for that theory. Like, isn't that self sabotage like, <laughs> basically? Yeah, so it if, is. How because, would you I mean, negotiate with get, people? Could you imagine Scott Boris knowing that and walking in to negotiate with them? So how much extra do you have to pay to deal with this?
1: Yeah. Or even, you know, if you're trying to get, you know, Dave Dombrowski to be your president of baseball operations, why would he want to be your president of baseball operations? And obviously he did become that, (laughs) but why would he want to walk in and become your president of baseball operations when he's seen the last two guys get, you know,
0: smeared on the way out. (laughs) Right. And John Farrell came in, John Farrell came into an organization that fired one of his best friends and by a lot of accounts put a knife in his back on the way out. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, you know, in terms of hiring uh, (laughs) uh, the best staff possible in, in all respects, baseball operations, coaching staff, scouts, everything, doesn't really make sense to do that. So, uh, you know, certain leaks, ball Polar stories, certain things like that, especially with the way they s- smeared uh, Trincona, um, that just doesn't make sense to me.
0: Well, and it leads you to believe how much of it's true and how much of it's just people trying to fill airtime because everyone has to have a hot take and because it's leaks and because it's sources and you don't divulge your sources. You can make these claims and they're never going to be proven or disproven. So they can become narrative. And I think the narrative runs away with itself and it becomes a bit of a conspiracy theory. And no one ever stops says, Wait, there's no motive at all for an organization to do this. No businessman in his right mind would let that be the brand attached to their franchise. And it makes you wonder how much of it's actually true, and how much fire there is to all that smoke. And it, well, you you deal with this on a daily basis. You're you work for MassLive.com. You write about the Red Sox, you have to deal with a lot of these narratives from people that don't follow the team on a daily basis. What would you say that your advice is to the Boston sports fan out there who has a million media choices and a lot of them just offer hot takes about the team? A
1: good point. Good. Yeah. Good question. Um, You know, there's a lot of good reporters these days and It's funny because, you know, I'm working on Reddit now and interacting with readers and this whole instance. I just posted something before I talked with you about, um, you know, how the the media dealt with this whole situation um, and, you know, how you don't want to become the story. And, um, you know, so there are a lot of good reporters and uh, but what what I mean by that though is that a lot of people on reddit will say something like you know or even comments on my column about this whole situation will say you know screw the media they're just trying to stir the pot you know just leave david price alone well sometimes you know these things can't be left alone because the information you know, with with price, this thing just went too far. First of all, but it also it was part of his narrative. You know, it, it wasn't just a confrontation between a player that's never had any sensitivity issues with a reporter.
0: Well, and as you said, it wasn't unprompted. It was a direct reference to something he chose to say to a reporter and an influential reporter. When you say something to Dan Shaughnessy, everyone in the Boston area is going to hear it.
1: Yeah. So, you know, in terms of today where they say, you know, fake news, (laughs) you know, real news, that type of thing. Um, you know, there's a lot of good reporters right now, uh, on the Red Sox beat. Um, yeah, you know, we do a good, lot of good stuff at Mass Live, and I don't want to chew our too much, but you know, you know, we report constantly on the minor leagues, the the major league team, provide news all the time, features, fun stuff. Um, you know, the guys over at the Providence Journal, Brian McPherson, Tim Burton do a really good job. Uh, Alex Spears, Alex Spear always gives a great analysis. Um, if you want to pay for the Globe website. Um uh, he always gives great analysis on 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 everything Red sox and you know he does it in a professional way um where it's usually not opinion with him it's really analysis and it's you know great analysis and um you know Rob rafford's one of the best reporters in in the game, and um you know he always gets good stories uh from you know rob Rafford from w e i and he, he's he got a knack of really, you know, being tight. I shouldn't say tight with the players, but the players feel like they can trust him. And that's why he gets a lot of good stuff from players because he, he they feel like they can trust him, tell him anything. So he's a good source to have, uh, you know, to read. All his stuff is going to be reliable. I think Evan is one of the best reporters young reporters in in the game right now a lot of people might say hot take um you know because he's with comcast now yada 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 i've known him for a while now he worked for mlb.com he actually worked a year for MassLive.com as a red sox reporter then he went over to the houston chronicle covered the astros there Made his way back to the Red Sox. He with the Herald. Now he's a, a Comcast. He does. He's like at a new job every year, but that's because everybody knows how you know really good he is, and he's a thorough reporter. He does a great job, and um, you know the hot take thing. Yeah, you know you look at the layoffs at say ESPN, and a lot of the reporters that just report got laid off. A lot of the Hot take people didn't get laid off. There's a society now that likes debate, that likes hot takes. And as a reporter, I know that my job is to report, give good analysis, and give truthful analysis, but I also have to give opinions.
0: That's yeah. essential. People are interested in that. I don't necessarily think hot take is a bad word. It can be. It can be just a guy stirring the pot, creating nonsense where there's absolutely nothing, or or basically throwing an accusation around because they can. But a lot of times it's also, you know what, we're talking about this for as long as we talk about this. Sometimes you're just going to have to bring something up to throw it out there. And you're not doing it to start anything. You're doing it because part of what you're paid to do is give your opinion i'm a columnist most of what i do is give my opinion and i try not to make it what you would consider a hot take but sometimes it has to be something a little bit out there because what else are you going to read on a tuesday afternoon besides something a little bit on the edge because it's something in the middle again everything's great is hard to read. It's not, there's not a whole lot of substance in everything's great and everyone should keep doing what they're doing.
1: Yeah. People want to hear opinion and, you know, people will say, I got, you know, I got comments on my opinion pieces that say, you know, you know, reporters know nothing, you know, um, the media stinks, yada, yada, yada. They should have, you should, you guys should hire you know, athletes to write these, not not people that don't play and yada yada yada. Well, in general, the stories on the road trip that I was just on, I went on. Uh, my coworker was in Chicago, and I did Baltimore, and New York. The most read stories that I had on the um, the website uh, from the road trip, where the like you know the one column I wrote per night after games, because people like opinion. And, uh, I mean, the rest of the stories did, you know, well, too. But those were the stories that got the most page views were the opinion columns. People like opinion. And, uh, you know, so many people will complain and say your opinion isn't valid because you didn't play the sport or whatever, you know, or you didn't play the sport at the major league level. There's still a a ton of people that value your opinion because you're in there every day. You, You know, you know, you report. You know the players you report, and um you know it's it, it valuable to have an opinion yeah.
0: and it's fun it's this isn't this isn't serious stuff this isn't talking about the president's latest scandal this is something that even the most sports crazed among us will admit. Is just something we watch, mostly we take it in for entertainment, and we like the analysis, we like going in-depth, but we also like having a little bit of fun with it, and sometimes that means going out on a limb. And that's not, this player sucks, or this guy's overrated, necessarily. Sometimes it's an opinion that's based on, hey, this guy told me this in the clubhouse, and now I've been thinking about it, and this is my take on what he said to me which makes, these are baseball teams, they play every day. If we're going to follow baseball, we're going to have to get connected to the players on the team, whether they're there for just a year or just a cup of coffee even, because otherwise it's going to get incredibly dry to follow a team for three hours a night, 162 nights a year. And around here, there's a lot of perception that everyone's trying to Get one over on the Red Sox. Like you said, people on Reddit saying, leave the players alone. You're with these players. I I can't imagine, there's no rooting in the press box, but I can't imagine there's anyone who would like the likable players on the Red Sox more than the guys that are with them every day. Yeah, and it's not like
1: you're you know, it's not as I wrote too on, on Reddit just now, I'm like it's not like we're going to our keyboards trying to, you know, kill kill players at every turn. I like these players. Um, you know, a lot of the guys are really nice guys. Um, you know, they're really respectful guys. Um, sorry, my dog's barking in the background. What
0: kind of dog? Um what kind of really dog respect- uh it's a Chinese crested ah. We're talking opinion columns and the value of giving our opinion and not really stirring the pot and how much we're we're all really rooting for these guys, especially the beat reporters who are with them all the time. You want something interesting that they said that might cast them in a positive light or at least an interesting one, but it's your job to report. It's not your job to back everyone up as much as you want things to always be good to write about sometimes it's not that way and let's face it a lot of people want to hear the not so great stuff too there's quite a market for it
1: yeah and it's like there it seems like some people feel like oh you know to the degree that the the writers want the team to lose or something you know because they have so much fun but um you know i mean a successful team we you know we're not rooting for the team but it's better for us when the team wins because that draws more interest that draws more readers more page views um and you know we you know covering a, a good team's a lot a lot more fun than covering a bad team you, you get to go to playoff games you get to you know i mean you know, just on a daily basis more players are are available uh, they're not hiding in the you know the back um, of the clubhouse, not not talking, and and so there's there's a lot more positive vibe when the team is winning, and so so you, you know you're not cheering for the team, and you know I grew up a Red Sox fan. I was hardcore. I was the type of guy that I I had to watch 162 games uh, per year (laughs) when I was a kid. I couldn't miss anything. At family parties, I would have to, you know, I would sneak out with my dad's keys when I was a kid and and go listen to the game on the car radio. Um, But when you cover it, uh, you know, that that fan does come away from you because you're in there working so hard and you're, you're just, dealing with stuff and you see stuff and you you know you, that fan comes out of you. You're not there to cheer. But as I said, you, know, you don't mind if you see them do well because you know, that's good for, for business for you.
0: Right. And I'm not saying you're cheering for the team necessarily but when you're seeing these guys every day and you know some of them are really likable, really good guys you want those players to succeed because you get to know them so well. So I mean, naturally, you would want something like that, which is also going on. And thats I think that's lost in a lot of this price stuff. People asking if you'd rather leave price alone. I'm sure most people would rather everything's good and price is having a good time and the team's winning and everyone's getting along. I don't think people are particularly happy about this. Maybe a few people that aren't in the clubhouse that whose job it is to stir the pot all the time, saw that headline Thursday morning and kind of cackled a little bit because they got an opportunity to write what they wanted to write or to say what they wanted to say on the air. But most of the people that are following the team, you, you follow these guys on a daily basis. How could you not want them to succeed? You're not trying to take them down because Well, they're going to read it. If you try to take them down, you're going to have to deal with them the next day. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Like, uh,
1: you know, Jackie Bradley, for instance, Uh, you know, one
0: of the nicest
1: guys you'd ever want to meet. And it's difficult to, you know, to to write negative things about him when he's not playing well. But you know he sees it uh, or he's seen it in the past. And he's just so respectful. I mean, every he knows everybody's name, first name, everybody, and um, and he's just so respectful. And it's like it, at times you're like, you had to have seen that column where I said, you know, this is your last chance, or where you, you know, you, I I even wrote this year that it was a good decision by Farrell to take Jackie Bradley out of the lineup. Um, you know when he did, and it's like you know i I really like Jackie Bradley, but that's what I have to say because I actually did did agree with Farrell and potentially Jackie Bradley read that, but you know at the end of the day, um you know I like Jackie, and uh so it's it's but that's what needs to be written, and he doesn't care, and uh that's that's what makes him. And he's a laid back guy. So that's another guy that, you know, can handle Boston and you know, that that kind of laid back personality.
0: Absolutely. I'll let you go on this question. I'm currently ranking the 30 teams in terms of entertainment, who's the most watchable team in baseball day to day. And for the casual observer, maybe not someone who's a Red Sox fan, maybe even someone who dislikes the Red Sox, wouldn't you say that Because of the ups and downs of the team, because there's nothing guaranteed, despite the high expectations, that they've gotten off to kind of a rocky first couple of months where they're still in the race, but they're not as good as people expected they would be. Would this be the most entertaining team in the AL East, do you think? Oof, that's a good question. I think the, the most
1: entertaining team would have to be the Yankees at this point, just because they're young. They've got some exciting players. Like, you know, I mean, Aaron Judge is like a must-see. Um, You know, I, I don't know if their pitching can necessarily – their starting pitching can necessarily hold up the rest of the year. But, I mean, Gary Sanchez – I don't know. They've got some young players. They're playing. I guess you could say over their heads, um, and they're kind of a likable group. So I would say the Yankees are probably the the more the most interesting or most musty team of the league right now. I would say the Washington Nationals, just because I I, I would pay to see. Uh, Max Scherzer, I, I always say like every time he takes the mound, he could see no a no-hitter or a perfect game or a 20-strikeout game. And, you know, Bryce Hopper to me is a fascinating baseball player in general because, you know, they talk about the game lacking uh, some personality. And, you know, and he,
0: might he, yeah, and he, and he, he might be a villain type.
1: Yeah, and he might be a villain type. But I love his emotion and the way that he, he thinks about the game and how he you know, wants to make baseball fun again, type thing. And I think it was great when he ran out and, and you know, um, you know, at the pitcher the other day. And uh, you know, I, I I I like that. I I think he's entertaining as, as anybody in baseball right now. So um, if if I was MLB, I would be promoting him. <laughs> But, yeah, you would um, think
0: he would be more of the face of, the, uh, of baseball or one of the faces of baseball. And certainly in terms of entertainment, the Nationals work both ways, too, that there's never a dull moment with a team with no bullpen, that they could have a huge lead. And so long as Scherzer doesn't go nine, it's never over against the Washington Nationals as good as they are. And yet they can go off on a huge winning streak. And that's, of, of all the first place teams, I think they're the one with the most uncertainty. And I think that unpredictability makes them a little more entertaining, too. I think they're one of the most entertaining teams in baseball. And the Yankees, certainly, they're, there's nothing like baseball when the big teams, and I know that, I know that this is going to anger a lot of fans down in the Tampa Bay area, and I'm sorry, but there is something. There is an allure to the the historic franchises all being in contention at the same time. You have the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Dodgers are doing so well. The Cubs are, of course, coming off the World Series, and they're they're right in the thick of things in in NL Central. That is really just weird right now it's completely on its head. I can't believe any of the things that are going on in the NL central, except maybe the Cardinals going in the tank. I think we've all been expecting that for years and it, it's finally coming forward. So Chris Smith of dot La- com, red Sox beat reporter. How can people find you on Twitter and social media? So I'm at, at Smitty on MLB.
1: That's uh my uh, Twitter handle, and I'm doing this thing with Reddit now. So I'm posting on the Red Sox page on Reddit uh, daily. Um, so you can find me on there, ask me any questions. I'll be doing some, you know, ask me anything AMAs uh, coming up. I think the next one's uh, closer to the trade deadline. Um, but anytime anybody has a question, I'll, you know, answer it on there. And anytime anybody has a question on Twitter, I try to respond as, as quickly as possible. So. Uh, those are the two two ways uh best to get a hold of me these days
0: Well, and there you have it for what we've just been talking about about Boston media and the back and forth with the team and the fans. Here's a guy out there that's not afraid to let the fans talk to him in any way possible, so thank you for coming on the show, Chris, and best of luck and enjoy the rest of the season and I know you've had a long night and morning, so please get some rest. Thank you very much. (laughs) All right. Thank you. That's all we have for you this week. I think Chris is right. There's a certain type of athlete who's better suited to thrive in Boston, but I really think it's on the teams in what we call the hub of the universe to value that and start seeking those guys out. It's funny, the same call-in shows debating whether David Price is cut out to be here will happily throw out the idea of the Celtics trading Isaiah Thomas, who not only is extremely well suited for Boston, but vocally wants to be here and wants to play here. The same people were happy to see the Bruins part ways with Phil Kessel and Tyler Sagan. And tonight, Kessel goes to touch Lord Stanley's Cup for the second year in a row. So it's really too bad he wasn't a Boston guy, isn't it? And of course, 13 years ago, it was Nomar Garciaparra. Run out of town because he didn't stand on the top step of the dugout for an early season game. As for Price, he needs to work with Pedro Martinez, who's been exactly where he is right now and could provide a lot of great advice on how to deal with the day-to-day of Boston Red Sox baseball. I'm a transplant in the city myself. I know it's not for everybody, but you'd be surprised at how little it takes to make anyone a Boston guy. Follow our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Thanks to Blog Talk Radio for hosting my content, and as well as hosting Podcast Lab in general. For Chris Smith of I'm Tim Williams. This has been the Pickup Game. Have a great weekend, everybody.